morning, everybody. Happy, happy Father's Day to the dads in the room. Thanks for spending this hour with us. Uh, so this is week three. Maybe you've been here all three weeks. Maybe this is your first week. Just quickly, kind of like the line of thought we're following for this month is week one, we asked, what is the Bible? So that we had an agreed upon text that we were focusing on for the, the course of the month. So what is the Bible? Week two, how do we read the Bible? where we primarily focused on literary genres and that we need to be mindful of the text or the type of text that we're reading as we go to it and study it. So what is the Bible? How do I read the Bible? This week, how do I understand the Bible? Which is super short, easy topic to cover. Uh, and then next week, you might think the question would be, okay, so how do I apply the Bible? I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. Next week, instead, we're going to ask what I think maybe is a better question. How do I savor the God of the Bible. So week one, we said it was revelation of who God is. And so humbly, how can we go to it and read it and hope to understand it? And then week four will be, how can I completely enjoy the God who has revealed himself through it to us? We'll talk about application some today for sure, but that's big picture, where we've been, where we are, where we're going. So this week, we're going to start again with a writing prompt. Uh, so take uh, maybe 30 seconds. And you can write on your, your handouts. But the question is, who decides the meaning of a text? Who ultimately decides the meaning of a text? How we answer this question matters. And I'm not going to say that I have the perfect answer to this. But I think this will just get the creative juices flowing. So take a moment, think about, write something down. Who? Is it a person? Is it Kyle Eidelman? Is it a group of people? Who decides the meaning of a text? <laughs> so this is tough, right? And, and so much of how we answer this question depends on our experiences and what someone else told you the answer to this question may be. And how we answer this uh, decides a lot of things downstream, especially application. Because if it's up to me or if it's up to a group of people or a different person, it's going to change on how we say you should apply it. So I'm going to give us a working definition for today that I'm not saying is the perfect infallible answer. I have lifted this from a very famous living pastor, theologian, author, because I think it's just a good place to start for us today. So again, not saying this is the perfect answer, but this is where we'll start. So I've said that the meaning of a text is what the author intended to communicate by their words. What the author intended to communicate by their words. So let me give an example from the Bible about why I think this is maybe a helpful place to start. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It sounds harsh. But essentially, Paul says, I wrote you a previous letter. Pause. This is in 1 Corinthians. That means that Paul wrote at least one letter prior to this. But at least for our purposes, like what we talked about in week one, 1 Corinthians is apparently what the Lord has preserved for us in his word. But Paul writes to this church in Corinth, and he says, hey, in my last letter that I wrote you, I said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Well, what I've heard is that you thought I meant anyone who's sexually immoral. 
Well, obviously, I don't mean unbelievers, because why would they live contrary to what the flesh craves? They don't know Jesus. And furthermore, how would they know Jesus if you never associate with him? So that doesn't make any sense. Of course, I didn't mean unbelievers. I meant people in the church. I meant people of your own congregation who proclaim to be followers of Jesus, yet live in a way that not even unbelievers live. Earlier in that chapter, he said, it's been reported to me that there is a man among you who has his father's wife, whether that's his mom or stepmom. But he's saying there's stuff that is going on in your congregation and you're not even addressing it. And so in this example, Paul is the author, and he's saying, I wrote you this letter, you misunderstood what I meant, now I'm writing you another letter to clarify what I meant. So, the meaning of a text is what the author intended to communicate by their words. Now, that seems like a really straightforward example of that, and it sounds, okay, that's great. Unfortunately, I only have one letter to the church in Ephesus. I don't have 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Galatians, where he's like, hey, I said this, now let me reiterate So there's not a ton of examples where the author rewrites again and clarifies points. So what are we to do with the umpteen other things that everybody disagrees on? So that's kind of our task today. We're going to talk about the approach to understanding a passage. And I'm going to, there's different ways you could frame this up, but I'm going to kind of set it up as either sides of a coin, that there's kind of two different aspects as we approach a text to discover its meaning. One I'm going to say is the supernatural the supernatural aspect to interpreting or understanding the Bible. The other one would be the, the natural. And just to be clear up front, I don't mean it's either or. I think it's both and. And sometimes we tend to go really extreme and take one and throw the other one out. I think it's both and, and we'll talk about why. So first up, let's talk about the supernatural uh, aspect to understanding the Bible. So we're going to learn a new word. We're going to learn a few new words. And if you don't remember these, it's fine. Uh, So our first one up is the word illumination. Uh, So you think the lights are off in this room, you walk in, you flip on the switch, the room is illuminated. So that's the idea that what was dark, not seen, not visible, suddenly becomes visible, tangible even. And so in the life of a believer that when we come to faith in Jesus, we believe the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works, we use this word illumination. That's this doctrine that the church holds. And pertaining to scripture, we believe that the Spirit awakens and turns on the light bulb, as it were, in our hearts and in our minds, in and through God's word, to know him, to see him, to appreciate him. So that's this idea. So on the next slide, Josh, to talk a little bit about illumination, again, I want to run back to the text and see what the Bible says about this. I don't want to give you just some doctrines that the church has made up, but where this is rooted. There's tons of examples. I listed a few at the bottom. I'm just going to read this one. I've tried to get a lot of my examples from 1 Corinthians, so we're not all over the place, but we'll still be a little bit all over the place. Uh, Illumination. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 2, Starting in verse 12, he says, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of him who, the spirit of who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human words, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So when you read a passage like 
I need to decrease so he can increase. I need to pick up my cross and follow him. I need to die to myself daily. That sounds like foolishness. But to the person who's received Jesus as their Lord and Savior and has the Spirit, uh, Paul says, again in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are saved, those who have received Christ, it is the power of God. So this idea of illumination is that and you can read the Bible, and you can even memorize big chunks of it and possibly still not know him. Jesus spent a lot of his time in the Gospels rebuking Pharisees who knew their Bibles, and they didn't know God in the flesh standing before them. So we can know a lot of things, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts and our minds, to stir our affections and desires to know him. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit primarily does that is when we go to the Word to know him. So... Before we talk about grammatical things and English majors and breaking down a text, I think it's fundamental that we start to say, start with, this is a supernatural thing, that the Spirit has to do something in me for me to receive and to see him through his word. So that's the supernatural aspect. A reflection on this we might ask ourselves is, how do you personally, how do you feel like you depend on the Holy Spirit when it comes to understanding the Bible? Maybe this is a foreign concept and you haven't thought about this before. Again, like most things, we tend to swing on this pendulum of extremes of either I'm 100% spirit-led, I don't need to break down a text, the spirit will stir my heart and open my eyes, it's all supernatural. Or we'll swing to the opposite end and say, it, it's all about syntax, it's all about word order. If you know Greek and you know Hebrew, you can break this down and understand everything. You don't, you don't have to feel or there's no supernatural element to it. But I, I think it's really more in the middle of, of both and. But for you personally, chew on that. How do, how do you consider the Holy Spirit when it comes to understanding the Bible? So if that was the supernatural side, we're going to talk now about the natural side. Uh, we're going to learn another word. Hang with me. Big fancy word, hermeneutics. Some of us, this might be old news. Some of us, this might be the first time you've heard this word. If we were all going to go enroll at Southern Seminary, we would take multiple courses in a class, hermeneutics. So uh, in pharmacy school, I took a class, pharmaceutics, that was all about pharma, drugs, suitics. So it was like the study of drug design and how drugs work, uh, understanding them. Hermeneutics, hermeneu means interpret. In Greek mythology, Hermes was the messenger of the gods. His, his role was to interpret the will of the gods to whoever, again, mythology. But hermeneu, to understand or to interpret. And so as it pertains to the Bible, this would be the science or the study of biblical interpretation. That's our word, hermeneutics. I'm going to say this is that natural or common side to biblical interpretation, not supernatural. We're going to talk for a few minutes about this. If you pick one thing out of this that is new to you and you think that might help me as I approach the Bible, great. Do I think any of us need to have this word ready to throw at somebody to show how smart we are? Absolutely not. So if any of this is helpful, praise God. So let's jump in. The first bit in hermeneutics we're going to start is just fundamentally our approach to the text. We're going to learn two more words. This is our last ones of the day. So this will be four, four vocab words we've added to our, our toolbox. The first one, top left, eisegesis which would mean to lead in. Is that what that, that's what that word means? Exegesis would mean to lead out. 
So these are two fundamental, essentially just approaches to the text. So how do we go in hermeneutics? How do we go to interpret the text? We either lead in or it leads out. So in eisegesis, the interpreter makes the scripture say what he wants it to say. In exegesis, we allow the text to speak for itself. Now when I tease it out that way, it kind of seems commonsensical of, oh, of course one's right and one's wrong. Um, But it's not always super easy. I mean, we bring our own junk to the text. And so often, like, you know, you're hurting, you're worn down, you're weary. Lord, I need some encouragement. And you open it up and you're looking for what you're looking for, regardless of what Paul or James or Moses or anybody's writing. I want the answers to the questions I have. And so we go to the text And a lot of times we'll grab something like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. They gave me this job that I'm not qualified for. And I kind of maybe didn't tell the truth in my resume or application process. But I can do all things so I can lead this team. And the truth is you're not qualified and you don't know it. Now, God can do anything he wants anytime he wants. But we sometimes will go to the text and say, I want to find what I want to find. Versus a posture of humility of saying, Lord, what do you want to say? Christy said it well. Um, She said this a number of weeks ago, and she said it this morning, that oftentimes we go to this as if this is about me. Fundamentally, primarily, this is about God. And most of it's not written to me. It's written to specific people and specific groups at specific moments in redemptive history. But it certainly is written for me. I am a, a child of God, And I am a citizen in his kingdom. So this is for my benefit. But often when I go to it as if it is about me, I can pull out things and contort them, even when I'm well-intended in my approach. So posture is humility. Exegesis, eisegesis. There's our terms. So our next slide. Uh, Oh, uh, a reflection on this would be for you to personally ask, how do you tend to approach Scripture? Just in humility, I'll be real, it depends on the the day of the week for me. Like when I'm tired and frustrated from work, it is really easy to run to the text and be like, Lord, I don't want conviction right now. Like don't call me higher, just encourage me and tell me what I want to hear. And then so often he'll tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear, if I'll get out of the way and allow him to speak. So how do you tend to approach scripture? So let's continue in our, our hermeneutics chat. Uh, this one is huge, uh, and, and we talked some about it last week for sure. Uh, maybe you've heard Kyle or a different uh, teacher say this from stage, or if you've done any reading, uh, there's kind of this tagline that context is king. That when it comes to interpreting Bible passages, context is king. Nobody likes to be quoted out of context. Like if you think in, a, in election ads, what do we always, what do we always see? You, you take a snippet, out of a whole conversation that somebody said, you, you tee, tee it up in a different light and you smear them and make them look like they were saying something they didn't mean to say. Like that's what happens in politics all the time that we see. Nobody likes to be quoted out of context. So we always want to keep in mind what is our context when we read a passage and what situation, what was going on to help us understand what the author intended by their words. And so there's kind of this progressive method of zooming out when it comes to context. So if if you're trying to understand what a verse says, it helps if you zoom out and read the paragraph that it's in the middle of. And it helps if you zoom out a little further and say, well, in this whole chapter, what was Paul really talking about? If you zoom out to look at the letter as a whole, 
If I'm between two interpretations, one doesn't really fit with what he keeps, the drum he keeps beating throughout this whole letter. And as we zoom out canonically, the whole canon, the whole Bible, does this align with the rest of it? So that's kind of a helpful process. Uh, Grant talked last week about literary context. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're still written up here. Uh, that much like music and film, that the, the genre that something is written in definitely determines our approach. Like a, a statement made in a horror film, you're killing me, versus a statement you know, in, a, in an action film versus a comedy, uh, the context determines what we mean by those words. The Bible is full of words. Words have meaning and even multiple meanings. If I say my wife Jessica is hot, I could mean she's feverish. I could mean she's beautiful. I could mean she's trending on social media platforms right now. So we always have to try to keep in mind what is the context this is being said in. Um, and then historical context is really big. And this is something where uh, for people who like to be studious about things, you'll thrive on this one. And for some of us, this is really boring. So I get both ends of that. I've been there. So historical context, I don't know about you all, but I wasn't fresh out of the womb an expert on what the life of a first century second temple Jew was like. Like when Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, it seems like a really big deal in chapter 8, food offered to idols. That doesn't land for me. Nobody sacrificed anything today. Pedia, or Pedia, Pedia would, you know. So it, it doesn't land. So when it comes to historical context, I would encourage you, get a good commentary. If you don't know what a commentary is, essentially someone has spent a ton of time doing a lot of that legwork for us or get a study Bible and it's a condensed version of that that oftentimes at the beginning of a book in your study Bible or if you buy a commentary on that, that book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians, it'll open with, hey, this letter was probably written around this time by this person in this town called Corinth. Here's what life was like in Corinth. Here's what people cared about. Here's how women were treated in that context. Here's what marriage meant. Here's how they dressed. So then when you read the letter that Paul has written, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense why he's talking about that. Like, who cares about this or that? So commentaries, I think, are a really good resource for us uh, to get us some historical context when we go to a passage. Maybe you've never heard of those, and maybe that's something you look into. Maybe that's the next step for you in your study. To kind of close out this conversation about context, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is just a famous document in church history where they took all of the tough questions and tried to agree upon a, a real clear answer about what does uh, the Christian faith say about these things. Um, in that, the, the, the term they came up with or the phrase was that the infallible rule or kind of the perfect, uh, the, the approach that is without error or mistake is to interpret scripture uh, with scripture itself. That if you're having a tough time understanding what James means in a certain chunk of the book of James, like consider the rest of the Bible before you just sit back and say, well, he probably meant this because that's, that's what makes sense to me. Like scripture, interpreting scripture is the best place to start. Commentaries are helpful. They're not scripture. So the infallible approach, the best approach is to always err on using scripture to interpret scripture. Uh, so from there... Our kind of reflection question, oh, no, let's get into these. Uh, before I break these down, let me just say, if one of these sticks with you, awesome. And I would say probably the best one is the first one we're going to talk about. So if you're taking notes, 
whatever lands for you, I'm good with because we're all in different places. So as we approach God's word, here's just kind of three different lenses I want to give you that are helpful in understanding or attempting to understand what an author meant by the words that they chose. So the first is this lens of descriptive versus prescriptive. Maybe you've heard this before, descriptive versus prescriptive. Is the author describing what happened or, like a pharmacist, if you have a prescription, you're given something that you're supposed to go and get filled and take a medicine, or are they prescribing behavior to you? Now, this matters a lot when it comes to descriptive, prescriptive. So where this happens a whole lot is in the Old Testament when you have a history narrative book. If we're in Genesis and it's describing what happened, it's giving you a historical account, very often people will grab passages out of the Old Testament and they'll say, here's a guy with multiple wives. I can't believe God liked that. Good thing Jesus came along and fixed that. When you read it in the whole, God never condones that behavior. He actually opposes it. But in certain chunks, the author isn't trying to tell you what's right and wrong. They're trying to accurately convey historically what had happened. So again, remembering our genre, that's helpful. But especially in the book of Acts, there is some wild stuff that happens in the book of Acts. And so a helpful lens is to say, is this a descriptive or is this prescriptive? So one example is in chapter 6. It says that there was a dispute about a certain uh, group of Jews, these Hellenistic Jews, who their widows were being neglected and they weren't being given food. Uh, and so the apostles said, well, we better, we better install some workers, some deacons to oversee and take care of that. So they appointed seven deacons. Is that prescribing that every group of believers should have seven deacons and no more? Can you imagine if Southeast only had seven deacons? We would be drastically undermanned. <laughs> so is it describing or prescribing? Sometimes that's just a really helpful lens. Uh, next one would be implicit versus explicit. I think a lot of us probably get this one right off. But is it something the author is implying or something they're explicitly stating? When we get into explicit, implicit, we always interpret the implicit by the explicit. You always use what's clear to try to understand what's unclear. And sometimes what's unclear is never really clarified. I'll give you a verse to prove that, that uh, I run to a lot because I like the answers. I like to have answers to everything. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So plainly, what's given to me is a gift, and I'm meant to pass it on to my children. But not everything is given to me. Some of the things are kept secret, and that belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you, Sam. Okay? So some of the implicits, I'm not going to get the answer to, but some of the explicits help us understand what Paul or Matthew or Peter are trying to teach and convey. There's not a ton of great examples in 1 Corinthians for me to run to, so I'm going to use one from the book of Mark that's kind of obscure, but maybe this lands for a few of us. Uh, it's in Mark uh, 12:25, where Jesus says this really fun verse. It says, For when they rise from the dead, uh, those who are in Christ, for when they rise from the dead, they are neither married nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels. And he goes on to keep talking. So people are like, 
So when, we, when we're resurrected at the end, we're like angels, and we're not married. Oh, well, angels must just be genderless, so when we, when we rise, we won't have a gender. Okay, that's what it is. Well, he doesn't say that, but there's entire doctrines built out on, well, angels are genderless, so in heaven, we're not going to be, so it'll be this gender-fluid thing that then you can spiral all over. Is that what Jesus is implying there? I don't know. Is there an explicit passage where Jesus talks about angels and genders in heaven? Not that I'm aware of. So apparently this is something I'm just not going to understand this side of heaven. And so as a humble reader of the word, I'm going to say, okay, God, that's that's a secret thing that belongs to you for now. So maybe that's a lens that's helpful, implicit, explicit. The last one we're going to cover real quickly is indicative and imperative. Indicative and imperative. Uh, So an indicative uh, would be what God has done or who we are in relationship to God. An imperative is what we're supposed to do. They're always connected and they're never separated. And the imperative is always rooted in the indicative. What God calls me to do must always be rooted in my relationship to him or in what he has done. So, some examples of this would be Romans 6. Paul's talking about uh, sin and basically says in verse 12, don't let sin reign in your body anymore. He goes on to say that essentially put sin to death. Get it out of your body. You're like, okay, got it. Don't ever sin again. Okay, thanks for the laughs. Like, I can do this. You keep reading and he says in verse 4, since you're not, sin no longer has dominion over you since you're not under law, under, but you're under grace. The only way I can overcome sin is by the grace of God. The imperative, what I'm called to do, is rooted in who God is and what he has done. And we can read a chunk and we can be really motivated. Like flee sexual immorality, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And we can, we can make it about gung-ho, grip my teeth, white knuckle, I can overcome this. It is always rooted in who God is and what he's called us into. In in Philippians 4, when he says, don't be anxious about anything. Okay, don't be anxious about anything ever. Got it. Gung-ho. But as you keep reading, that's rooted in the God of peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. He'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I'm in Christ. I have this promise that this God of peace that's greater than anything I can fathom or comprehend He'll guard my heart and my mind if I turn it over to him. That's how I can overcome anxiety. That's how I can overcome worry. So as we go to God's word and trying to understand a lot of these commands that we're looking for, we have to keep reading to see the greater context of what those commands are rooted in. And it's rooted in an identity in Christ. Uh, So from here, I think we have a reflection question that's how can you be a more faithful student of God's word? 2 Timothy 2.15 basically calls us to be a worker who rightly handles the word of God. We have a whole residency program here called the 2.15 residency that's based on that, that verse. How can you be a more faithful student of God's word? If anything I just covered is maybe something new to you that you're like, I never really think about it through that lens. If that helps you in discerning what the author is trying to convey, praise God. Maybe it's looking into a commentary because you're like, I don't ever know the context here. Maybe that means getting another book, a commentary, and and being a better reader, a better student of God's word. Now, application is important. 
Yes. Absolutely. 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 You're about three slides ahead of me, but let's just go ahead and say it. That's absolutely, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses uh, a big chunk of this letter to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, one of those being teaching. And he, he says that, look, we're all different, and the Spirit decides who gets what gifts. For some of us, we have English majors, and we love to do this stuff. Some of us are pharmacists that didn't, weren't trained anything on this. Some of us went to seminary. Some of us, much later in life, opened this for the first time. We're all in different places, and our giftings are all different. If my eye looked like my ear and my nose worked like my mouth, I'd be a weird dude. But as it is, each one of us is a different part of this body that together under the headship of Christ is a beautiful picture of what God has created. And so we are to study this not only in private time, asking the Lord to sanctify us, to make us more like him, to teach us about him, but also, especially, great point, in community. Because there are some of us that find certain parts of this easy, and other of us that this is really challenging. And so when we do this together and we lock arms as a body of believers, the Lord can work through each of us individually to encourage, to edify, and that is essential. So great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Application. So I said kind of in the intro, uh, a lot of us want this application piece and we kind of want to run past, God, what are you teaching me about you? And we want to run to, well-intended, and run to, what am I supposed to do? Just tell me what to do. I want to do the right things, which is well-intended. But like the indicative imperative conversation, what we do has to flow out of understanding who we are in Christ. And again, to circle back to the Pharisees, they did a lot of right things and they didn't know God in the flesh in front of them. So, in terms of application, uh, I want to say that the Bible is consistently more concerned with who we are than what we do. It's more concerned with who we are than specifically what we do. And my evidence on this is uh, Jesus, when asked what's the most important thing we could ever do, he says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with every ounce of you and every bit of your life, love God. And then the second most important thing, by extension, is to love the people around you. Okay, well, what about in this specific situation? What about that? What about this weird context? The most important thing we could ever do would be to love God and to love people. So in terms of application, that's our number one goal. But to be clear, and this came up last week, 1 Corinthians 11, like should women wear hats in church? There's all these specific examples that Paul gets into and and Peter and James and the author of Hebrews that we have questions like, well, what do I do with that? How does that translate to modern cultures? Um, I don't want to suggest that we should just breeze past those and not ask those questions. But I do think our first stop in that process would be to ask God, what are you teaching me about you here that I might know you better so that I can get the indicative first and flow out of that with what to do the imperative. So, regarding the question last week we brought up about 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, there seems to be this weird situation in Corinth where both men and women were either wearing head coverings or not, or maybe they were bald and had their hair in a bun. 
there's a lot of information on this if you dive down that rabbit hole. But it seemed like there was something going on in, in Corinth that their, their external adorning of themselves, what they were wearing or not wearing, was somehow indicating whether they were submitting to a headship or not in a way that reflected Christ's submission to the headship of the Father. And this isn't just a tangent. I think this is important that Christ is no less than God the Father. We believe them to be fully God. But in humility, he, he, he submitted himself to the headship of the Father. And there was something going on in Corinth. We're not to say that women are above women. Before God, we are equal. Quality for sure. But there was something about headship going on and the, the way they were covering their heads. Now, how does that translate to today? Well, obviously, like, we don't care if you wear a hat in here or not regardless of what gender you are. I mean, but how, how do we know that that's a faithful carrying forward of what God's word is teaching? Again, to go back to last week, one of Grant's points in that diagram with the picture and the bridge, that we want to search for that timeless truth that's in here because uh, oftentimes that, that timeless truth is what carries and the application changes based on culture. Like a real quick example is if we talked about dressing modestly in this room. I think a lot of us would kind of assume we, we have an agreement on what would be a modest dressing in here, and probably that would include everyone having a shirt on. But if we got on a boat and went down the Amazon and found some travel group of people, they all may be wearing only a loincloth, and it's totally normal in their culture, and no one there is questioning modesty. Like That's a super easy example that like cultures will dictate modesty and all sorts of other things, but what is the, the timeless truth that we're trying to convey in this passage or that Paul is trying to convey? It seems in that one specifically, it had to do with a Christ-exalting display of submission to headship. That's one small example. But anyways, in terms of application, should women wear hats in church? I would say, doesn't matter. <laughs> anyways, so next up, uh, after application, we're going to talk about I think maybe the most important thing we're going to talk about today is how to handle disagreements. I don't even know if these statistics are right because they kind of blow my mind. But what I read was that uh, it's estimated there's more than 200 different Christian denominations in the United States right now, or at least as of a month ago. And that globally, I don't even understand how this is possible, that there's more than 45,000, which is wild. Um, Again, sticking with our First Corinthians, why not? Chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, this is verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In chapter 3, he goes on to say there shouldn't be divisions. It doesn't matter if you were baptized by Paul or Apollos. What are you all fighting about? You're in Christ. So often with human nature, we, we pick and choose what's most important to us, and we make that ultimate things, and we divide, and we say, okay, well, you and your tribe go there, me and my tribe will go here, they and their tribe will go there, but we all claim the name of Jesus, and there's tremendous division. It, it, it undermines our testimony. It undermines the gospel that we teach and that we preach. So a couple points on disagreement on our next slide. Um, I think a spirit of charity towards others with differing views is essential. A spirit of charity or grace towards others with differing views is essential. In chapters 1 and 3 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about there should not be division. 
And sandwiched in the middle of that, in chapter 2, and the end of chapter 1, he's talking about the good news of the gospel of Jesus and what he did on the cross. Later in the same letter, in chapters 12 and 14, he's writing about spiritual gifts, which apparently in Corinth there was a huge division over. People arguing about, well, I have this gift, and it's obviously more important than your gift because your gift does this, but mine gets more people's attention. So, And there's all this division. And what's sandwiched in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? Chapter 13, the love chapter. We need to be rooted and centered on the gospel of Jesus and just abounding in love with one another and with others, loving God and loving people. So spirit of charity towards those with differing views. So the next point, spiritual triage. This is a term, as best I can understand, was coined by Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary. Uh, kind of the idea is like medical triage if you walk in an ER. This person just got hit by a train. They have a headache, and they have some sinus problems going on. Quickly, I have to determine whose is the major issue I need to focus on because we have one room for surgery, and it's medical triage, moving people where they need to go and discerning what's primary, secondary, tertiary issues. So the idea that Al had was that in spiritual triage, we were trying to discern which foundational truths and beliefs are primary and essential. Like, was Jesus God in the flesh and bodily died and rose? That is essential. Should we have instrumental music or non-instrumental music in our worship? I'd say that's probably maybe even tertiary. That's not essential, I think, to salvation through Christ. And so this idea of spiritual triage is that we should try to figure out which hills are worth dying on, as it were. So if that's something that maybe, like me, that you are prone towards, I wouldn't say I'm prone towards debate, a little bit, I'm, 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 I'm not scared of confrontation, but I, I like debates and I like uh, heady conversations. But maybe that sometimes gets you in trouble where you look like you're wanting to argue and debate that you're right, they're wrong, and it's leading to division. If that's something you wrestle with, maybe that's something the Spirit can convict you on that you need to grow in, like I need to. Uh, there's a, a new book out by a guy named Gavin Ortland called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and it's all about spiritual triage. Maybe that would be a good next step for you if that's a camp you fall into. Uh, when it comes to disagreements about, I think this passage means this, they think it means that, who's right, what do we do? Um, a helpful question to ask is, what has the church's position been on this historically? It seems like time in and time out, these questions will come up that it feels like somebody just yanked the rug out because they have this really tough question that based on our culture, what are we supposed to do about this? Did that just undermine that this Bible isn't valid anymore? It's not applicable anymore if we go back and revisit some things like the Nicene Creed the Apostles Creed some of these catechisms which are those famous documents I kind of talked about the Westminster Confession of Faith what we'll see is that over and over and over through history these same questions come up they get repackaged rebranded reworded so they sound like something new but these tough questions and opposition that comes against the word of God seems to be the same thing over and over and so you read one of these documents that speaks directly to that, and you're like, oh, in the 1500s this was going on, so it's not a new 2021 deal. And to me, that's helpful. Uh, next up, the elders are the final authority in the local church. There's a lot we could say on this, but essentially when it comes to biblical interpretation on something that's tricky, if you have a problem with something taught somewhere and you called the church to complain, you would get triaged eventually to one of our elders who would sit down to talk to you. Uh, there's a lot you could read about elders in First and Second Timothy and in Titus about their role and their function in the church. Uh, but 
they are the, the final authority in the local church, as it seems the, the church is set up in Acts, at least. Um, I will say from my experience, they are going to stand firmly on primary issues and allow people to breathe and flux and differ on secondary and tertiary issues. That's one of the reasons we're an independent Christian church. The last thing is just a quote from one of my favorite teachers, Alistair Begg. The main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. When we go to the text, there's some tricky stuff, but the main things are the plain things, and the plain things, more often than not, are the main things. And if we focus there, a lot of times some of that division will kind of fade. So finally, uh, kind of our reflection is how do you tend to handle interpretive disputes? Maybe this is an area you need to grow in. The Lord can uh, work in your heart and your mind to be more charitable towards others. And then finally, um, we've got some more homework questions. We're going to stay in that same passage in Matthew 18, and we're going to apply some of the things we did that we talked about this week to that passage, and we're going to stretch it out and go a little further. And we'll circle back to the beginning of next week to talk through that passage. Um, throw a couple books up there. Again, I quoted uh, Gavin Ortland, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Um, and then in terms of commentaries, I would say there's a lot of good ones out there. Like there are a ton of good ones nowadays, so there's not one I would probably put my stamp on. Um, yeah. So I would say in our time left, we still have seven, eight minutes. Um, I would encourage you, maybe you can think through some of these reflection questions we talked about as we walk through. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about last week's homework or just get to know one another. I'm totally good with that too. So anyways, next week we'll be back here for the final week of the four uh, where Madeline's going to lead us and we're going to go through how to savor the God of the Bible. So thanks for your time. Appreciate y'all.